Arsenal for Democracy is available twice a week. There's a free episode at arsenalfordemocracy.com or Apple or Stitcher each weekend and a midweek bonus episode at patreon.com slash arsenalfordemocracy, available for $5 a month. The show is recorded and produced by me, Bill Humphrey, in Newton, Massachusetts. Our theme music is produced by Stuntbird. Follow us on Facebook or at AFD Radio on Twitter. The show is not affiliated with any campaign committee and each participant's opinions are their own. This man is your land. Redwood Forest, Gulf Stream Waters. This land was made for you and me. You're listening to Arsenal for Democracy, episode 363, a bonus episode recorded on Tuesday, April 6th, 2021. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Joining me on the line, as always, from Idaho is Rachel. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Bill. This week's bonus episode is about a Union Army general from the American Civil War named William Woods Averill, who became an extremely successful businessman after the war by patenting asphalt paving and then fanatically defending that unique patent in the courts as one American city after another immediately began paving its streets during the Second Industrial Revolution. So let's talk about who William Woods Averill or William W. Averill was. So let's talk about his career before and during the Civil War as a Union officer uh, in the United States Federal Army. During the war, he was mostly unsuccessful, but he was generally considered to be good as a training officer, and he was experienced, if not visionary or bold, as a supply line raid commander. He had only finished West Point six years before the war, and he served in New Mexico in the U.S. cavalry campaigns against the indigenous nations there. Averill rose during the war from a regular army lieutenant to brigadier general in the volunteer cavalry, leading some rough-and-tumble mounted Kentuckians and later on West Virginians, although they were classified under Pennsylvania for various reasons. He had a few vaguely okay performances during the war and one bright victory in a surprise attack where he captured hundreds of Confederates in their camp very early one morning, but mostly he was characterized for having a huge amount of hesitancy uh, as a commander. Uh, He was actually fired twice by two different commanders for failing to press forward with resolve when ordered and was exiled back home to western New York by the fall of 1864. Uh, He did, however, have modest success in the March 1863 Battle of Kelly's Ford before that, uh, which took place on the Rappahannock River in northern Virginia when his cavalry raider division tentatively battled the Confederate cavalry raiders to a draw, which was the first time that the Union cavalry hadn't gotten completely overwhelmed and defeated in that type of engagement, and that hugely boosted Union cavalry morale and confidence going forward in the war, even though, again, he basically fought it to a stalemate. After the war, he was given an honorary promotion after the fact, to brevet Major General in recognition for his performance at Kelly's Ford, but it should be emphasized that wasn't considered to be a real rank. Um, It wasn't like a official permanent promotion. In terms of post-war politics, uh, he did serve as the U.S. Consul General in British North America, which at the time was an interesting job because the British territories in North America, excluding the Caribbean, 
uh, were considered British North America, and that initially included Canada, which is where he was sent, except that at the same time that that was happening, he served 1866 to 69 in that position, Canada was in the process of forming the Dominion of Canada. Now, not all of Canada joined in all at once, or I should say, not all of what we today know as Canada joined in all at once. So he was sort of serving as the U.S. Consul General uh in the new dominion of Canada, but to the British North American territories that were not part of Canada. This brings us now, though, uh, to his post-war business ventures, especially in the area of paving, which is when he sort of exited both the military and uh, political side of things uh, to try to make his fortune, like many of the officers from the Union Civil War. Um, so, uh, Rachel, uh, could you give us a little bit of a taste of what we're about to hear from? As usual, all of our articles will be up at patreon.com slash arsenal for democracy when this goes live. Um, but we have various sources, uh, not just Wikipedia here. We're going to be talking in a second about the New York State Library System. So can you give us a little bit of a taste from the uh, Wikipedia article kind of summarizing what his whole deal was? Averill was also an entrepreneur and an inventor working in the fields of coal, steel, and eventually paving materials. His businesses and his inventions of practical devices provided him with a handsome, handsome income. Among his inventions were methods for manufacturing steel castings and insulated electrical cable, but he is best known for his work with asphalt pavement. So, as I said, we're going to talk now about his biography from the New York State Library System, which actually has a very large collection of his official papers. Um, he was the type of person who was, you know, constantly writing diary entries and things like that, and, uh, you know, just had tons and tons of books and journals and letters and so forth. Um, so we do know, at least from that, a fair amount about him. Now, I didn't go and access the state library system archives. Um, so I'm just repeating stuff from their sort of summary biography of it, but it's still pretty interesting. So as I said, he got fired uh, permanently from the Union forces in the fall of 1864. And that was not, you know, it was getting near the end of the war, but it was still uh, quite a ways to go. So his early exile from the war, more than half a year before it ended, seems to have given him a jump on some of his peers from the Union Army in getting into the business world. By June of 1865, he had launched a coal and gas speculation company, but this effort failed early too, even if he would return to the petroleum industry later from a very different angle, which is what we're going to be talking about with paving. That investment debacle is what prompted him to accept that diplomatic appointment in October 1866 to Montreal from fellow Democrat, the new president, Andrew Johnson. But he was relieved from this post when Republican president and former General Grant, who I don't think had a particularly high opinion of him, took office in the spring of 1869. Rachel, could you talk about what he decided to do after he left the diplomatic corps? Undaunted by the abrupt end of his consular career, Averill turned his fall interest to various business endeavors. At first, he delved into steelmaking, but then, however, a different mineral soon occupied his attention. In the fall of 1870, Averill had become interested in asphalt, especially its uses for street pavements, despite problems he observed with pavement laid in New York City and Newark on an experimental basis, according to patent patented procedures of Belgian engineer chemist Edward J. Desmelt. Bad as the pavement appeared, Averill nonetheless was convinced of the potential of asphalt if he could develop the right formula and method to lay it properly. Shortly thereafter, Averill assumed the presidency of the Grahamite Asphalt Pavement Company, where he began to analyze the Desmelt formula 
the machinery used in laying the pavements and the paving techniques. He then began a series of experiments to improve them. He developed better pavement laying techniques and culminated long years of effort and experimentation by being granted a United States patent on January 14, 1878, entitled Improvement in Asphaltic Pavement. Why don't we talk now a little bit about what asphalt actually is and the history up to that point uh, before we talk about what he then did with that patent after 1878. So I didn't know a whole lot about this, but and I don't think you did either, Rachel, but it was kind of interesting to find out. Obviously, we've talked last year about the oil boom in Pennsylvania that pr immediately preceded and then really took off uh, after the Civil War. Uh, but asphalt, uh, also known as bitumen, especially in British contexts, is a petroleum byproduct, uh, and it's one of the byproducts that was most commonly exploited in the ancient world uh, before people could figure out how to use petroleum oil itself uh, for various functions. When you talk about things bubbling out of the ground in North America, that's the uh, the asphalt uh, bitumen that is bubbling up. Uh, this this is something that indigenous cultures had known about for many centuries and often utilized. And that is what eventually triggered that Pennsylvania oil rush beginning in 1859 and accelerating after the end of the Civil War. Now, in Europe, uh, asphalt had actually already taken off quite a bit before the period that we're talking about in the Second Industrial Revolution in the United States. Uh, so in France, back in the 1830s, uh, asphalt uh, as a petroleum byproduct uh, had become a, an ingredient that could be worked into a whole range of things, and this became a huge fad for flat roofs, sealants, and for what we're talking about today, paving. This quickly took off in England as investors rushed to patent the exclusive domestic rights to the French technology and, importantly, to arrange for the importation of French and German bitumen, which could then be mixed together for asphalt paving or these other things like roofs and sealants and that sort of thing. Um, there does seem to have been an interesting kind of lag uh, between the French and English wave of asphalt paving and the wave of U.S. asphalt paving. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what the factors of that sort of delay uh, or, or stall was, uh, I've speculated a little bit um, that it might be because of how late the oil rush started in the United States, right? You had to have at least a somewhat nearby source of asphalt, uh, probably, to make this uh, economically viable. And I would imagine that it was also delayed significantly by the Civil War, right? The oil rush starts in 1859, and that's right before the Civil War kicks off. Uh, but when it did finally uh, arrive as a kind of asphalt paving craze, once the technology was sort of perfected on the state side by our protagonist of this episode, General Averill, the demand was substantial at that point. Every city was looking to get this done. So uh, there was actually some interesting quotes from the uh, uh, Asphalt History uh, Wikipedia uh, article before we get back into that New York State uh, Library bio. So Rachel, could you talk about uh, some of the statistics on uh, paving in the late 19th century United States? In the horse-drawn era, U.S. streets were mostly unpaved and covered with dirt or gravel. Especially where mud or trenching often made streets difficult to pass, Pavements were sometimes made of diverse materials, including wooden planks, cobblestones, or other stone blocks, or bricks. Unpaved roads produced uneven wear and hazards for pedestrians. In the late 19th century, with the rise of the popular bicycle, bicycle clubs were important in pushing for more general pavement of streets. Advocacy for pavement increased in the early 20th century with the rise of the automobile. Asphalt gradually became an ever more common method of paving. 
Small towns continued to rely on dirt and gravel, but larger cities wanted much better streets. They looked to wood or granite blocks by the 1850s. In 1890, a third of Chicago's 2,000 miles of streets were paved, chiefly with wooden blocks, which gave better traction than mud. Brick surfacing was a good compromise, but even better was asphalt paving, which was easy to install and to cut through to get at sewers. With London and Paris serving as models, Washington laid 400,000 square yards of asphalt paving by 1882. It became the model for Buffalo, Philadelphia, and elsewhere. By the end of the century, American cities boasted 30 million square yards of asphalt paving, well ahead of brick. The streets became faster and more dangerous, so electric traffic lights were installed. And these are all things we have talked about in past episodes, bicycling, the rise of the automobile, and then necessitating the rise of electric traffic lights and other traffic calming methods. Right. So how did we actually get from this period of paving stones, paving bricks, paving wooden blocks to asphalt paving being kind of ubiquitous? Well, a lot of that really has to do with uh, our inventor, uh, General Averill, and his uh, patent for improved asphaltic pavement techniques. Uh, so as Rachel said earlier, he got that patent granted in January 1878. He then began lobbying state legislatures, municipal government machines, and the U.S. Congress for the contracts to pave major streets or demonstration streets in northeastern cities in the District of Columbia. There's one example from the New York State Library account, uh, if you could mention that, Rachel. One prime contract received by Averill was for the repaving of Fifth Avenue in New York City. Since this required special action from the New York State Legislature, Averill spent much time in 1875 lobbying for the bill that failed passage mainly because of opposition encountered by the Tammany Hall Block. As a result, work in New York was delayed for several years. Another major contract awarded to Averill in 1875 was in Washington, D.C., where a test strip of pavement was laid on Pennsylvania Avenue. This test was a tedious, tiresome round of dealing with Congress and the commissioners of the city. So notable there that that was happening in 1875, a few years before his patent was finally granted. Um, but things really kind of took off uh, once the patent was in hand, uh, although not without some bumps. So from 1880 to 1898, he was involved in almost constant court battles in the United States and power struggles relating to his control of the asphalt paving patent. Averill was also interested in the communication field where he developed and perfected an asphaltic conduit for an underground electrical system, for which he received a United States patent on July 21, 1881. Deemed successful, this device brought Averill a high degree of recognition and respect from individuals like Thomas A. Edison. Another invention, a water or sonar telephone, was deemed to be impractical, though Thomas D. Coynihan of the Hazard Manufacturing Company was greatly interested in marketing it. In 1888, with Democrats finally back in power in Washington for the first time since the Johnson years, Averill was given a special post with a steady income, Assistant Inspector General of Soldiers' Homes, which he would serve as for 10 years, traveling around the country inspecting on, reporting on, and lobbying for federal funds for soldiers' homes, hospitals, and long-term care facilities for the veterans of the Civil War. Now, he did die childless in 1900, but at that point he had amassed quite a bit of money despite all the legal battles over his patents because he had managed to successfully defend that patent. And all of these cities, as we just talked about a few minutes ago, had started uh, putting down asphalt paving everywhere. Uh, he and his wife eventually left most of their money uh, from his estate to two of his younger married sisters. 
Now, at this point, we do need to take a detour back to the 1880s to talk about another figure. Now, you may recall from our episode on the natural ice industry uh, and the ice trade that uh, guys who got really into delivering ice uh, for a local city or region were often referred to as the ice king of that particular city. So similarly to that, we're going to talk now about Amzi L. Barber, known as the Asphalt King. Now, there were so many different things I could have talked about with this guy because he's a very sort of odd uh invest investor industrialist real estate type figure um and uh basically his background was that he was a real estate developer of a gated whites only suburb in the district of columbia in the 1870s and then as a result of that he became interested in the possibilities for asphalt street paving um but rachel is going to talk now about the clash between Averill and Barber, uh, the asphalt king over uh, patent rights and so forth. In 1880, Averill was charged with infringement of patent rights by Edward J. DeSmelt, claiming interference for seven patents issued between March 1st, 1870 to February 7th, 1871. The dispute was resolved within a year by a complicated settlement involving, as interested third parties, Amzi L. Barber and James McLean. The case was settled out of court by the creation, through complex exchanges of stock and capital, of the American Asphalt Pavement Company, and the patent action was set aside. The structure of the American Asphalt Pavement Company, when incorporated under the laws of New York State on April 21, 1880, consisted of a board of directors that elected Averill as president and a three-man executive committee that was headed by Amzi Barber. The executive committee was given full power to transact all business of the company. This arrangement made it inevitable that a conflict would arise, which it did within a year, between the two corporate heads. Questions of patents and royalties and other internal differences led Barber to organize the Barber Asphalt Paving Company. In 1883, Averill sued for infringement of his patent and won a judgment against the Barber Company. There were 15 years of delays, appeals, and referee awards. Finally, in 1898, the appellate division of the New York State Supreme Court upheld an award in Averill's favor for a total amount of $700,000. Which, of course, that was a huge amount of money in 1898, uh, which helps explain how he, you know, had uh, become so wealthy off of this uh, by the end. But uh, as uh, Rachel just mentioned, after the failure of the arrangement with Averill around 1881, Barber formed his own asphalt paving company in 1883 and immediately faced litigation from Averill, again, just described by Rachel. While this battle dragged on until 1898, Barber did gain one specific advantage in 1887, a 42-year monopoly mining concession from the British government in their federal colony of the Windward Islands for access to Pitch Lake, Trinidad's massive asphalt deposit, which even today still has an estimated 10 million tons of asphalt. Uh, And again, we're talking about the just raw component of the asphalt byproduct uh, of petroleum uh, before it's been mixed together into anything that you can use to pave, which was the gist of the whole uh, struggle over the patent for the asphalt paving techniques and so forth. Unlike other famous tar pits, where the focus has been on scientific research of trapped animals or people from prehistory, uh, this tar pit in Trinidad is mostly for extractive use with some ancillary tourism. And apparently, uh, at least uh, from his Wikipedia page, 
1900, Barber had laid over 12 million square yards of Trinidad asphalt in 70 American cities at a cost of $35 million. So you can see why there was such a contentious struggle for 15 years over the asphalt paving patents uh, between these two men and various other uh, parties, uh, because this was an extraordinarily uh, lucrative concession while the patent was active. Now, one thing that I wasn't totally sure about while I was doing this research is whether or not Averill uh, was using asphalt mined in the northeastern United States. Remember, he had been involved in a short-lived attempt to get in on the uh, Pennsylvania oil boom or its immediate neighbor in western New York across the state border. Uh, that didn't really go anywhere, and so I don't know if he was getting his asphalt from there or if he was also using uh, the Trinidad asphalt up until the point that Barber ex received his exclusive monopoly mining concession from the British. Um, the reason I'm not sure about that is because two of Averill's companies in the early 1870s had in their names uh, Trinidad. They, those were the Grahamite and Trinidad Asphalt Company and the New York and Trinidad Asphalt Company. I find it kind of hard to believe that there wasn't a connection to Pitch Lake and Trinidad, uh, because why else would you have mentioned Trinidad in that? Um, I can't really figure out what the other connection would be. Um, but again, that's just me speculating um, based on the research that I was able to find, uh, especially from that biography at the New York State Library Archives. Now, um, two other sort of facts about our asphalt king, Amziel Barber, the rival to uh, General Averill, uh, was that Barber also later tried to go into the automobile industry. I was wondering if that was to generate more usage and demand for asphalt street paving. Because remember, he came at it from a different angle uh, as Averill. So Averill had kind of, you know, was affiliated to the oil industry, kind of liked tinkering with various inventions, had seen a demonstration and decided he could do it better. Whereas Barber came at it from the perspective of a real estate developer uh, who wanted to maximize his other investments and make those better. Um, and asphalt was a way to do that. So I'd be very curious as to whether or not he saw the linkage between the auto industry and um, uh, which he didn't really succeed in particularly, um, but it was something that he, you know, looked into a little bit as an investor for a while. Um, you know, maybe that would, you know, having put down all these miles of streets, uh, you know, get more people uh, driving or vice versa. You get more people driving, they'll lobby for more streets to get paved and that's more money for you. Um, and then the other sort of fun fact about Amzi Barber uh, was that his wife's first cousin was married to Mark Twain, who also tends to come up in a lot of these narratives. Um, certainly a very well-connected guy besides all of his writing. Uh, when you're talking about the uh, sort of Gilded Age uh, tycoons and so forth of the end of the 19th century in the United States. So, uh, Rachel, as we uh, prepare to wrap up this bonus episode this week, I wanted to get your general thoughts. As I said, I don't think either of us really knew a whole lot about asphalt paving's history and origins uh, until we were doing the research for this. Yeah, I, I really didn't. You don't think about what what asphalt is made out of and all the work that, that kind of goes into it. Um, I, I do find it very interesting that he kind of got a head start on the other like post Civil War business tycoons, um, but it didn't it didn't seem to to serve him well until until much later. So I don't know how advantageous that that head start actually was, but it's really interesting how all these concepts that seem pretty disparate when we're when we kind of go into like the show planning have all really started to connect, like the oil rush and uh, the rise of the automobile and 
bicycling. And uh, it's just kind of interesting to see how all these um, topics tie into each other and, and really um, kind of spur the, the historical importance of each other. Well, it's definitely not given us a shortage of things to talk about on the show, especially on our bonus episodes, has it? Right. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, Rachel, I will leave it there on uh, General Averill's Asphalt Paving Empire. Thank you so much for being on the show this week. Yeah, this was a really fun topic to talk about.